Good afternoon, church. It's good to be here. Uh, I'm thankful to be able to share God's word with you today. But I want to start with a question. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever done anything that you would consider foolish? Yep, it should be all of you. All right, thank you for those of you who are honest. Not that we needed it, though, but this little exercise is proof that the only thing we can get 100% agreement on among a group of people is that we're surrounded by fools. Just look around you at any institution or icon in our culture, whether it's in politics or academia or entertainment or religion even, or in the social media or mainstream media. It's filled and overflowing with utter foolishness. And whether you're talking about Wars or political unrest, economic instability, seemingly endless violence, family strife, even division in churches. This foolishness is what leads to so much chaos and confusion in the world around us. But of course, we have to be careful because if we go beyond these nice generalities, uh, we might start to realize that we're not in as much agreement as we think. You might realize that the fool sitting beside you thinks you're the fool for what you think. But in all seriousness, the Bible has a lot to say about foolishness. There are more than 200 verses that explicitly mention fools or foolishness. And that's beside the fact that probably the majority of the verses in the Bible uh, describe the foolishness of man, either through their narrative or through their prophecy or through some other means. And so I bring this up today because the passage we're about to read not only mentions the proverbial fool, but it does so in a way that gives the essential root and the eternal significance of the foolishness of humanity. So we've been going through the Psalms for the past few weeks. Pastor James has continued his summer in the Psalms messages, which basically means that he's trying to preach through 10 Psalms each summer uh, until he finishes them in the year 2035, Lord willing. And as you read through the Psalms, each Psalm has significance as a standalone document, right? There are poems or songs used in worship and devotion. However, they also have significance historically for the ones that we know their historical uh, background and also literarily by the way they're arranged. So they're placed in a certain order, meaning so that there's meaning as you read through them as a whole, not just one at a time. So that's why we're encouraging everyone in our church to read through all 150 psalms this summer. And it's not too late if you haven't started. It's still only a few psalms per day. And uh, Pastor James usually calculates that. I haven't done that, but you you can do that on your own. But today we're going to look at Psalm 14. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And if you're using one of the blue Bibles that's on the seats, uh, I believe it's on page number 453. So if you're visiting and you don't have a Bible at home that you can read and that you can use, feel free to take one of those blue Bibles home with you uh, and read it and learn more about the God that we worship. That's our gift to you. But Now, in the Psalms leading up to Psalm 14, they're primarily Psalms in which King David expresses very personal and intense feelings. Either David's crying out to God to rescue him from his enemies or from some sort of suffering, crying out to God for forgiveness for something he's done, or crying out to God in praise because of God's power over creation and over his enemies. 
In this psalm, though, it's kind of like David steps back for a moment. He takes a deep breath, and he contemplates what's going on around him. In the midst of much turmoil and chaos, he's able to get kind of a a bird's eye view. He has a glimpse of all humanity from God's perspective. And he can see things as they are. But in a sense, it's from a position outside of space and time. He's looking down on the human race as a whole. And this perspective then intensifies David's longing and hope for God's purposes to be accomplished in the present. And so this is something we can all relate to, of course. We've all been in situations where it seems so confusing and chaotic until we take a step back, right, and look at the whole picture. We even have idiomatic ways of saying it, like when we say we need to gain some perspective or create some distance, or when we say, I need some space, or let's not get into the weeds. They're all nuanced ways of saying that we need to back up and look at the situation from further out in order to have a more objective understanding. That way we can approach the situation with more clarity and make wiser decisions. Well now, when we think of the chaotic and confusing world around us, right now we're going to back up and gain some perspective so we can understand and navigate this crazy world with wisdom instead of acting foolish, as we just all admitted we're prone to do. So go ahead and look at Psalm 14. I'm going to read the very first sentence. Psalm 14, verse 1, starts saying, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this, my friends, is where it all begins. So starting there, as we go through this psalm, we're going to consider three truths that Christians must know in order to act wisely in a world of chaos and confusion. Three truths that Christians must know in order to act wisely in this world of chaos and confusion. And based on the first sentence of verse 1, the first of these truths is that God is truth. God is truth. Of course, the psalmist states it in the negative, as that who denies God is a fool. And this is the the opposite but equal statement to the oft-quoted verse in Proverbs uh, 1-7, where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so I'm going to dissect this statement a little bit to make sure we all fully understand what David's saying here. So you have to remember that during the time period in which he's writing, there were very few people, if any, who would have been outright atheists like people we have today. And even if they were, they were not open about it. And so the dominant concept of deity at the time was a form of syncretistic polytheism. And so, indeed, we, when we consider how the Bible implicitly approaches atheism, though, we understand that there's no such thing as an atheist in the purest sense. Because if someone doesn't believe in God, they're forced to make themselves gods. They make an idol of themselves. So, When they become their own god, they fall into the same category as the polytheist. And so this isn't a polemic against atheists per se. He's essentially describing anyone who pays homage to any god other than the one true god. And these false gods can include idols of wood and stone and metal like they had in their day. can also include idols of ideology like power and wealth and security and knowledge or the idol of self. When you don't know the true God, and therefore when you don't know the truth, the only thing you're capable of doing 
is following the dictates of your own heart. And therefore, all idolatry, no matter what false god that you say you serve, is an expression of you projecting your own thoughts and desires onto the world around you and then elevating them to the status of deity. And that's also why he says that the fool says this in his heart. He's looking past what you say with your mouth to what you actually believe in your heart. People say a lot of things about what they believe with their mouths that they don't back up in their heart with what they believe and the way they act. And so they acknowledge that there's a God, but then they think and act like it doesn't exist. In this sense, the statement even includes those who would give lip service to the one true God, but yet not trust Him or obey Him. So basically, in this passage, the fool is anyone who thinks and acts in unbelief of the one true God. And of course, this true God is the one, the one to, to whom the psalmist is referring is the God of the Bible, the all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, omnipresent, glorious triune creator of the universe who is sovereign over all things and infinite in all his perfections of love, goodness, righteousness, justice, grace, mercy, wisdom, and holiness. Yeah, when you put it that way, only a fool would deny such a God. But I want to bring this down to a very practical level today. So if you're visiting and you're not a Christian, thank you for coming. We're glad you're here and we have prayed for you. But at this point, you may be saying, well, yeah, we're in church. You know, I could have seen this coming. Of course, we're going to tell you you should believe in God. And for the Christians in the room, you may be saying, okay, I get it. I'm not perfect. But I do believe in the, the true God. So what now? Well, I'm, let me give you some examples of how this impacts us every day. So first... Considering Christians or Christian culture, I guess you could say, two things I want to highlight are prayerlessness and entitlement. Prayer is how we commune with God. So if you say you believe in God and yet don't pray regularly, you're effectively denying him in your heart. I believe it's Michael Reeves who says in his book, Enjoy Your Prayer Life, that prayerlessness is practical atheism. Therefore, brothers and sisters, prayerlessness is foolishness. But then if we think of entitlement, we live in an age where we're encouraged to feel entitled about many things. And while Christians typically acknowledge that uh, this isn't good, we nonetheless often do feel entitled about many things just more subtly. But understand that we are creatures. We aren't entitled to anything from our Creator. Every good thing we have is a gift of God's grace that we don't deserve. From the possessions we have to the very breath in our lungs. So once we start feeling entitled, we stop giving thanks, and we stop being generous to others. We start getting angry and bitter and selfish. Instead of focusing on the objective truth of God's goodness and grace, You start focusing on the subjective desires of your own heart and therefore become miserable. But friends, if you find yourself in a situation in which you're struggling to forgive someone or perhaps struggling to ask for forgiveness, or if you find it difficult to pray for someone or to rejoice in another's happiness and blessings, or even if you find yourself struggling with envy 
We find it difficult to take responsibility for the circumstances in your life. Check your heart. A godless sense of entitlement may be the thing that's lurking in the background. Because entitlement foments bitterness. And bitterness is like a cancer that will continue to grow until you root it out. I pray that you would do that as a Christian. But next I want to consider some examples from our broader culture. Right? I was just going to talk about two of the obvious ones. Soji and abortion. James talked a little bit about abortion. But Soji, if you don't know, stands for sexual orientation and gender, gender identity. So the acceptance of these ideas, though, is based on a worldview that encourages you to look inside yourself, consider your own feelings and desires, your ideas and views, but then express those things outwardly as your truth and your reality. It encourages you to create your own identity and your own purpose. You get to define what's true, and then you should have the autonomy and the authority to act on that truth and demand that others acknowledge that truth as good and right. Soji applies this to your gender and to your sexual fulfillment. You should be able to decide what gender you are and who you have sex with. And it's true as long as you feel good, and no one should be able to tell you otherwise. But then abortion applies this in the sense that women should be able to define the reality of what's going on in their own body, and then they should have the right and authority to do with their body as they please. And no one has the right to tell them what to do with their own body. Some would call this radical personal autonomy, uh, or like Carl Truman, the author of the book Strange New World that we're reading uh, on Wednesdays for our Bible study, uh, or a, a book study, I should say, uh, he calls it expressive individualism. But at its core, though, in biblical terms, it's just idolatry. That kind of autonomy, authority, power, and privilege is the prerogative of God alone. And so you take that upon yourself, you're making yourself into an idol. Now, I hope you see why this is acceptable to Christ, or, uh, unacceptable to, to Christians, whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian here today. I hope you can see now why this is unacceptable because it's not because of bigotry or closed-mindedness. On the contrary, we love and pray for those who have this worldview. Many of us had this worldview ourselves, and there are still remnants of it in our thinking that we need to eradicate still. But the issue now is that we've accepted the truth that there is a God and that it's not you, it's not me, it's not any other human being. So for someone to ask us to treat them like a God the way they treat themselves is to ask us to break the first commandment, which, as most of you know, is thou shalt have no other gods before me. So no, we don't get to define our identity and our purpose. God said we were created in his image to do his will and to display his glory. It's God who sustains our very life. So we're not autonomous whether we think so or not. And we don't have the ultimate authority over our own bodies. God created us male and female and he gave us instructions on what our role should be in that construct. We were created to enjoy sex within marriage as defined by the covenantal union between one man and one woman. And as a person's life begins at conception, it would be murder to terminate that life in the womb, no matter what word is used to describe it. But you may ask, what's the big deal? You do you, let me do me, and let's just get along. 
Once again, that might be okay if we accepted the prevailing worldview and made ourselves gods and decided we just didn't want to deal with it. But once again, we're not God, and so we don't have that option as Christians. We're created to display God's glory and to declare His truth. And so to go along with the lies that people say about themselves just to make them feel good, while the world may say that's um, affirmation, say it's loving and inclusive. If you look back to Psalm 12 that Pastor James preached on a couple weeks ago, you see that the Bible calls that deceitfulness and flattery, and it says it's vile and wicked. But specifically for the Christians in the room, I hope you understand that how you explain your position matters. What I mean by that is that there are many well-known personalities out there that give speeches and do podcasts and, uh, you know, do debates, and they come to some of the same conclusions that Christians do about these things, right? But that's all well and good, except our understanding of the issue doesn't begin with evolutionary biology or social anthropology or philosophy or science. The gods of science or conservatism or realism or libertarianism are still false gods, And if you base your understanding of the world on them, you're still a fool, according to the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that everything they say is untrue. Uh, Don't get me wrong. They probably have some good things to say. The problem is that any philosophy that doesn't begin and end, end with God fails to describe ultimate truth and purpose. So I remember being in Chicago for seminary, and I was walking past a construction site where they were building a new skyscraper. And it was at the very beginning stages. And so... They, they had a hole, they had dug a hole. When you look down in that hole that they had dug for the foundation, it was so deep that you couldn't even see the bottom. Uh, and so if, if you didn't know, uh, depending on the size of the building and the features of the ground that it's built on, they have to dig anywhere from 50 to 400 feet below the surface in order to hit rock that can support the foundation of a skyscraper. It's amazing. And they have to do that, otherwise the wind alone would cause it to collapse. Well, building your worldview on correct conclusions with godless reasons is like building a magnificent skyscraper without a foundation. It may look and sound beautiful, but when the winds of conflict blow, it's going to come crashing down. And when families and institutions and societies and nations do this, the destruction, the injustice, the oppression... The brokenness that it causes is horrific when it comes down. We see it all around us, all the time. But like fools, instead of of turning to God, many of us will turn from the rubble and start building a new building. Different ideas, different shape, different engineers, new leaders, but still no foundation and therefore still no hope. So if I can speak a little more to those who call themselves Christians today, realize that this principle applies to every single aspect of your life, whether it's your thoughts about mainstream culture issues, like we described, or more church issues, like complementarianism, or your theological distinctives, or your church structure, or perhaps church discipline, or even the way you think about church, uh, about spiritual disciplines, like how often you read the Bible and pray, whether you meet up with other Christians for discipleship, whether you allow yourself to be accountable to other Christians for the sins that no one sees. 
If you're acting or making your decisions according to your own pleasure or fear, you're acting as if there's no God and you're plunging yourself into foolishness. So friends, let everything you do begin and end with acknowledgement of God and his word. But now let's move on to the second truth that Christians must know in order to act wisely in this world of chaos and confusion. Truth number two, God defines what is good. God defines what is good. We see this in the rest of verse one through verse four. So if you look at the passage again and start reading where we left off in verse one, it says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And now this truth is a direct extension from the first truth. God is truth and he defines what is true and therefore God also defines what is good because he is good. He defines what is righteous because he is righteous. Of course, the text gives the negative again, right? Because it gives God's perspective on humanity. And in doing this, it both assumes my point that God defines what is good, but it also assumes another point, which is the logical conclusion that God has the right to evaluate whether or not we are good. He has the right to evaluate whether or not we are righteous. And that's exactly what he does in these verses. And the psalmist doesn't mince words. He says that all are corrupt, all have turned away, and that there's not even one who does good. There's no one who understands or seeks after God. And note that the the word translated as understand could also be translated as act wisely. There's none who act wisely and seeks after God, which is where I get the, the term for my main idea. But now some might interpret this as David just speaking about his enemies, but making an implied exception for himself and God's people. However, it's very clear from this that this is a comprehensive statement about all of humanity for all of time. And we know that for a few reasons. First, because it's in accord with many other verses in Scripture which God, in which God evaluates humanity. One of them is Genesis 6-5, where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Another example is Jeremiah 17.9, where it says the heart is deceitful above all things. But another reason is that the passage itself is comprehensive. When it says the children of man, that's a reference to all of humanity. And it's, again, it's emphatic that there's not even one who does good. And then third, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 3 when he, he expre- he's expressly making the point that all people at all times have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And this includes all people in Genesis, all people in David's and Paul's time, and then all people now. The Lord looks down on the wars and the protests and the politics, on the corporations and the societies, on the families and in the, in the individuals, and his evaluation is that there is none who does good, not even one. But now the natural response is to say, now wait a minute, can you really say that no one ever does anything good? Isn't that really extreme? I mean, we see lots of good people do good things all the time, don't we? Well, two things can be said in response to this. One is that this is an evaluation of a person in totality, 
So some people can do, or people can do good things relative to other people, but that's like watching a thief and a murderer trying to uh, hand out candy to make up for their crime. It's just woefully insufficient, and it's incapable of making up for our sin. But two, even for the good things we do, God looks at our heart. And so from God's perspective, how can our deeds be truly good if we do them while denying the truth and rebelling against our Creator? It's like if someone hired me to manage $10 million of their philanthropy funds and asked me to use it to help the poor in inner-city Baltimore. But instead, I thought it would be better to take the money and use it to help refugees in the Middle East. So I did that. All the while telling everybody I gave the money to that the money was mine. And letting them think that I was the one who was so generous. Generous. Sure, good will have been done for those refugees. But in that case, I'm still a prideful, rebellious, self-righteous, deceitful, thieving fraud. And so that's what God sees when we act like we're so good while denying him and the goodness that he's done for us. And so it gets worse, though, when you look at verse 4. Look at it with me. Verse 4 says, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? So the psalmist is asking a rhetorical question here. And this type of rhetorical question implies a positive answer. Right? He asks, don't the evildoers have knowledge? which implies the answer of, of course they do. And if they don't, they should. And so this, again, this deepens our understanding of the Bible's portrayal of sinfulness in humanity. And this is what's illustrated in Romans 1, 18 through 32, that Carrie read for us earlier. Right? In Romans 1, the Bible doesn't describe us as helpless and ignorant, having no ability to come to any understanding of God or what is good. No, God has revealed things about himself through creation and through his word. If you, if you, you should read Psalm 19 at some point uh, at home, but in Psalm 19 it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then it goes on and to exalt the ways that we see God's hand in creation, but also his character in his law. So therefore, Paul's conclusion in Romans is that mankind has no excuse. Sin is not the ignorant response of someone who is a victim of their circumstances, It's the active and knowing rebellion of a creature against the creator. Romans says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, with the result that their foolish hearts were darkened and that they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for idols. And this sinful foolishness is what leads to the rampant wickedness that was as evident in ancient Rome as it is in 21st century America. And now you can see why David, in writing this psalm, goes straight from speaking of the fool to the sinfulness of humanity. Foolishness, according to the Bible, isn't necessarily stupidity. There are many extremely intelligent people who reject God. Nor is it a complete lack of knowledge of God. No, the fool is the one who rejects the knowledge of God that he has and chooses to rebel against him. And so the conception of sin that we see here in verses 1 through 4, is the basis of a doctrine that we call total depravity. It's the biblical teaching that every human being is a sinner who can do nothing good enough to merit the righteousness that's required by God's holy standard. 
Which, by the way, is another reason why it's so bad that our culture would teach you to look inside yourself for truth and purpose and identity. Because when human beings look inside themselves, what do they find? They find wickedness and deception and corruption. So while this gives a pretty bleak picture of the state of humanity, there is good news. You see, even though it deepens our understanding of sinful depravity, verse 4 is also a turning point in the psalm. While verses 1 through 3 condemned all humanity under sin, verse 4 provides hope. See, where it mentions my people, the people it's referring to are the people of God. And so the, the psalm somehow, between verses 3 and 4, goes from there is none who does good to my people. So this is, this is a riddle, right? And there are a hints to the answer of this riddle in verses 2 and 4, this, uh, the psalm itself reveals what it takes to become righteous, right? It says it takes seeking God and calling on the name of the Lord. Seeking God in verse 2, calling on the name of the Lord in verse 4. But the riddle still remains, right? How can someone become righteous just by calling on the Lord? Or how can there be people who seek God if it just said there's none who seek God? So we find the answer to this riddle in the New Testament, the answer is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since there's no one who seeks after God, God sought after us. And that was his plan from the very beginning. We learn in the New Testament that according to God's plan, God came to save his people himself when they could not save themselves by becoming a man in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is known as the unique son of God or the incarnate word of God. He's both truly man and truly God. And he became man, this is the reason, in order to live a sinless life that he could uphold God's righteous standard that we couldn't. And then to die on the cross as a sacrifice in our place as a substitute for us. And then rise again from the grave to conquer sin and death forever. So what I mean by a substitute is that since we could not attain the righteousness that's required on our own, like the psalm says, Jesus took the punishment we deserve for our sin on himself at the cross. And he offers us his righteousness instead. That punishment that we deserve is death in hell, apart from God, from all of eternity. But now, because of what Christ has done, we don't have to experience that punishment. Romans says later that all those who call on the name of the Lord, as the psalm says, will be saved. What that means is that if you turn from your sinful ways and confess that Jesus is Lord and trust in his death, death and resurrection to save you from your sins, God promises that he will give you eternal life as one of his children. And God will give you the Holy Spirit, which will enable you to seek after God. And it will enable you to obey him. He will save you from the foolishness and rebellion and death of this world and he'll give you true wisdom and holiness and a joyous new life. And so if you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you'll do that today. Repent, believe, trust in Christ this afternoon. I encourage you, don't leave here without talking to me or one of the pastors at the doors or any other member of NCBC before you leave about what it would mean for you to experience this joy of salvation today. 
But now that leads us to the third truth that we must know in order to act wisely in this world. Truth number three is that God executes justice. God executes justice. So if you look back at the passage in verse 5 through 7, I'll read it now. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Now, there are two points I want to make related to this truth, subpoints, if you will. But before jumping into that, one thing to remember is that in verse 4, uh, a new dynamic is introduced, one in which there is conflict between God's people and between the evildoers or those who continue to reject God. And what that means is in this life, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and, and you're living according to God's Word, acting wisely and acknowledging Him uh, in your thoughts, in your speech, in your actions, you will have conflict. On a human level, this world is still fallen, and it's under the power of those who rebel against God. And Jesus warned us in the New Testament that in this life, we will have trouble, and that they hated God, and so if they hate Him, they will hate us because we're His children. So if you identify with Christ, don't be surprised if you face conflict in this world and suffering because of it. And that's on top of the conflict and suffering that we all experience just from living in a falling world that's chaotic and confusing. So, subpoint one, though, if you look at verse 5 and 6, is that since God executes justice, God will judge the wicked, but is a refuge for the oppressed. So, remember that we're still in the bird's eye view here. And in verse 5 and 6, these things that it's talking about are often expressed in a very real and practical way in our lives, in the present. But the point of the psalm is really to give a theological and eternal perspective on God's relationship with the righteous and the wicked. This is really actually the backbone of all the psalms, and you see that by reading Psalm 1. But you see from verse 5 that God is with the generation of the righteous. And so this phrase, generation of the righteous, can be defined in biblical terms through the lens of Jesus Christ's saving work as those who believe in his death and resurrection and trust in his righteousness for salvation. God is with them, and he is a refuge for them. But it's because he's sovereign and just that he will judge the wicked. And that's why the people in this passage are in terror. See, they refers to those fools or the evildoers or those who don't seek God, who don't call upon the Lord. They, in verse 5, is also the you in verse 6 who would shame the plans of the poor. And the psalmist just zeroes in for a second, right, to, look, to speak directly to those who reject God. But that's every one of us. Who, that's who we all were before we believed in God and believed in the gospel. But now the psalmist is looking at them from the lens of eternity, viewing their ultimate end. And what he sees is terror. They are in terror of the judgment that they're about to receive. It's the same terror that the Israelites felt when God appeared to them on Mount Sinai like a blazing furnace and shook the earth under their feet and consumed any who drew near to them. And it's, it's, it's the only response, really, that makes sense when a wicked and rebellious creature stands before the almighty creator of the universe. But this should be a comfort to Christians even now. 
See, while God is terrifying to those who oppose him, he's gentle and humble and gracious and a loving father to those who call on him. And so we see how in this world many are oppressed and mistreated. The plans of the poor and the needy are often crushed. And they're marginalized through deceit and through negligence, manipulation, and injustice. And so we look around often, like in Psalm 13 from what James preached on last week, and we say, how long, O Lord, how long will our enemies exalt over us? But remember that this injustice toward the poor, again, in this world, is a picture of a theological reality. The poor here who take refuge in the Lord are the righteous ones who call on the name of the Lord. Okay, the Lord is not a refuge for prideful and rebellious sinners just because they lack money. It's telling us something more important than that. This is a poverty of soul that leads you to seek God and call out to him for refuge in a world where sin seems to reign. But for those who trust God, he is indeed our refuge. And we can go to him now daily in prayer with our fears and our concerns and our struggles, and he'll comfort us and he'll give us peace. This is still our Father's world, and he's still sovereign over it. But one of the present applications of this truth, though, is that it is unbecoming of a Christian to live in fear. Let me say that again. It is unbecoming of a Christian to live in fear. And that's not to say that we should never be afraid of anything. No, fear is real, and there will be things in, the li- in this life that cause us to be afraid. But Christians have a refuge in God. And by extension, we have a refuge in the church, which is the congregation of God's people here on earth with the Holy Spirit dwelling in our midst. And so when we have fears and anxieties and struggles, we need to lean on God and lean on other Christians. But if we allow ourselves to continually live in fear of things in this world, you know what happens? We become the fool. That constant fear is an expression of the terror that the wicked who deny God uh, have, right? And so that it, it leads to foolishness and chaos of the world. And so think of the pandemic and how it's wrecked our economy and uh, it's destroyed relationships and caused more division. So much of the response of so many people was not based on truth or wisdom, but on fear and hysteria. And that's on both sides of the issue. Or even think of the drastic measures that people are willing to propose to combat climate change out of fear of a catastrophe that the Lord said would not happen until Christ returns. Or think of the fear that's expressed every time a president from the opposing party than yours happens to be elected. It causes increased hysteria and even violence, like we saw before President Biden's inauguration. But this isn't just for big cultural things. Those are easy. It applies to us very personally. Many people, many in this room, are often crippled by fear or anxiety. Sometimes it's because of trauma in the past. Sometimes it's because of uh, insecurities about present or future circumstances, both in our lives or in the world around us. Sometimes it's hard to explain even where it comes from. But this fear leads, as many of you know, to depression, anxiety disorders, 
anger. It leads you to compromise what you know is right for temporary security or pleasures that the world offers you. It can even lead to dangerous or violent outlets toward yourself and others. But brothers and sisters, I exhort you, stop looking inside yourself for the answer. You won't find it there. And stop looking to the philosophies of the world around you who deny God. Those may look good at first, but they're like building skyscrapers on sand without a foundation. Look to God. Look to Jesus Christ, our Savior. The answer begins with God as your refuge, and it ends with God as your glory and your purpose. Jesus Christ is our refuge and our strength, and he is our salvation. And so this leads to the second subpoint, and the last thing we'll talk about today. It's that God will save his people. So I'm going to end here where the psalmist ends. David considers this comprehensive and eternal perspective on humanity, about sin rebellion, or humanity's sin and rebellion against God, God's ultimate victory over sin, his mercy and grace toward those who take refuge in him. And this leads him to cry out with a hopeful and longing response. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. David's hope in God's promises for Israel is like the energy that gets him through the day when he considers the confusion and the foolishness of the world around him. And yes, David is focused on Israel here, but this is relevant for us because Israel's Savior is our Savior. Jesus Christ fulfilled all the promises that God made to Abraham and to Israel and to David, and we are now grafted in to those promises as God's people. And so the promises of of eternal life in Christ are for us. And so, again, if you haven't repented of your sinful lifestyle and trusted in Christ, I pray that you would do that before you leave here today. But for Christians, remember that the Lord is our salvation. He will give you strength so that you don't have to fear. He will give you wisdom so that you don't follow the foolish ways of the world. And he will give you peace as you look beyond this world to the future glory of living in God's presence where there will be no sin and no suffering ever again. There is a God. He is truth. He defines what is good. He executes justice. And he is our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the only true God. We acknowledge that, Lord, you are the God of heaven and earth. You are the one who establishes truth, who establishes the foundations of goodness and righteousness. You are the one who evaluates us, and we acknowledge that your evaluation is true, that in our hearts we are wicked and we have denied you. But Lord, we glory in the salvation that you offer us. We glory in the fact that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for people who were his enemies out of the great love and the great mercy and the amazing grace that you have for us. Lord, we praise you today and we thank you for the salvation you've given us. I pray for those of us who trust in you that that trust and that truth would would be in every single fiber of our being. It would impact all our decisions, all our emotions, all our words, all our thoughts. And I pray for those 
who have not accepted you, that they would do that, that they would repent of their sin and they would come to you and, and experience the amazing grace, the amazing comfort that there is in Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you for all this today. In Christ's name, amen.